Well, I just <clears throat> wanted to, uh, to turn. We'll when you're outside, we'll discuss whatever problem you have, okay? The patients are not allowed in the nurse's station, all right? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Hey, Billy. Hard on, thank you. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? That music is for everyone, Mr. McMurphy. Yeah, I know, but you think we might ease it down a little bit so maybe the boys didn't have to shout, huh? What you probably don't realize is that we have a lot of old men on this ward who couldn't hear the music if we turned it lower. That music is all they have. Your hand is staining my window. Sorry, ma'am. Right. Really sorry. Mr. McMurphy, huh? your medication. What's in the horse pill? It's just medicine. It's good for you. Yeah, but I don't like the idea of taking something if I don't know what it is. Don't get upset, Mr. McMurphy. I'm not getting upset, Miss Pilbo. It's just that I don't want anyone to try and slip me salt, Peter. It's all right, Nurse Pilbo. If Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. But I don't think you'd like it. movie. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash how is this movie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and subscribe and possibly leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. I was like most of you listening, surprised by what happened at the 89th Academy Awards. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I didn't see it happen live. Even though I thought it was odd how Warren Beatty was stalling on announcing the Best Picture Award winner, the moment Faye Dunaway said the words La La Land, I literally turned off the TV. It was after midnight and I was tired. At the time, I will admit being a little surprised that La La Land won both Best Picture and Best Director. Earlier in the day, I was talking with my friend Holly and she asked me, well, who do you think will win the major awards? I told her it would be a split. La La Land and Moonlight. Each will win either Best Picture or Best Director, but they won't win both. So when Dunaway said La La Land, I found myself very surprised. Now, ironically, right after I turned off the TV, I got a text from my mother. Like myself, she's an avid film buff and we spend hours discussing film. Her text read, well, that was quite the faux pas. Now, remember, I had no idea that anything crazy had happened. Before I could respond, she sent another text. This one read, Biggest Oscar fuck-up of all time? Question mark? Now, that text surprised me. Now, I didn't think that she was that upset that La La Land had won Best Picture over Moonlight. I said in response, Oh no, the text read. The biggest Oscar fuck-up was easily Crash winning in 2005 over such masterpieces as Capote, Brokeback Mountain, and Munich. She texted me back and asked me to clarify why I thought that was a bigger F-up than what had just happened. 
I sent another text saying I think Private Ryan should have won the Best Picture in 1998 over Shakespeare in Love. She texted me back with three question marks. I then fell asleep. The next morning, I made my coffee and sat outside of my back patio. I turned on the iPad and began reading the news. I almost did a spit take when I finally realized what had happened. Moonlight had, in fact, won Best Picture. Now, two things were running through my mind. One, I was right when speaking to Holly about my Oscar predictions, as far as those two splitting the top awards. And two, I need to call my mom, because clearly the text messages that we were exchanging needed clarification. I called her, and the first thing she said was, You turned the TV off the moment the award was announced, didn't you? To which I replied, yes. We shared a few laughs over the whole thing. So how did I know that the two films would split the award? Well, all you need to do is look back over the past 10 years. It's pretty much a trend. To be honest with you, I really don't think that you can use the Oscars these days as a solid barometer of what the best film of the year is. This is because there are so many working parts associated with the creation of a great movie. And it's the sum of all of those parts that need to be recognized as well if you're going to call it the best picture of the year. The Oscars have five major awards that I feel a film needs to win to truly be titled Best Picture. They are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. And that last award is split into two, the original screenplay or adapted screenplay. Now, in the history of the Academy Awards, how many times did a film win these five major awards? Now, there's been 89 Academy Awards shows, and in nearly a century, only three have swept that category. 1934's It Happened One Night with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, 1991's The Silence of the Lambs with Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, and the subject of this episode, 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Our story begins with a gentleman by the name of Ken Kesey, who was born September 17, 1935 in Colorado. At the age of 11, his family moved to Oregon, where they all worked on the family dairy farm. Kesey was an avid athlete who excelled in sports, most notably football and wrestling. He was offered a full scholarship to the University of Oregon to play football, but once there, switched to wrestling. Kesey was so dominant on the wrestling mat that he almost qualified for the U.S. Olympic team. To this day, he is still listed as one of the top 10 wrestlers in that school's history. Kesey graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Speech and Communications. Kesey, who at this point was seeking a writing career but lacked the credentials to further his aspirations, enrolled at the Stanford University's Creative Writing Center. He would spend five years at Stanford immersing himself in all that the top-level university had to offer. And all was not without its issues, however, though. The director of the writing center, Wallace Steger, often clashed with Kesey, calling him, quote, a talented illiterate, and rejected Kesey's many attempts to gain fellowship. Walsh was also quoted as saying that he saw Kesey as a threat to civilization and intelligence and sobriety. These harsh statements were not without some merit. You see, while at Stanford, Kesey volunteered to take part in a government-sponsored medical trial that was being held at the Milano Park VA Hospital nearby. The study was called Project MK Ultra, and it was secretly funded by the CIA. The purpose of this trial was to study the effects of drugs such as LSD, mescaline, cocaine, and DMT on the human brain. Kesey was paid $25 a session to participate and would go on to recreationally use LSD for years to follow. How did you become a volunteer for these experiments? I, at the time, was um, training for the Olympics team and was in As a wrestler? Shape. Yeah, as a wrestler. I've never been drunk on beer, you know, let alone done any drugs, but this is the American government. The study of LSD continues in laboratories and hospitals throughout the United States. 
And they paid us $25 a day to come down there, and then they gave us stuff. What is LSD? How does it work? When did it all begin? It all began in a laboratory very much like this one. In 1938, Dr. Albert Hoffman in Switzerland was looking for new drugs in the treatment of migraine headaches. When I discovered LSD, it was believed it was a, a product of laboratory. And then we discovered that these compounds had existed already for thousands of years in the plant kingdom. He had been studying molds that grow on rye plants. Now, it turned out that these substances were of no use in the treatment of migraine headaches. However, it was found that these substances could produce a change in mental state closely resembling some forms of insanity, in particular, schizophrenia. When I was asked to do these drug experiments, I thought these drugs might give us a way to cure insanity, to overcome depression. That was part of what we thought we were doing. What kind of preparation were you given for it? Were you given any? None at all. I'd read a little piece in Life magazine about how they'd given it to cats, and cats were afraid of mice once they'd had LSD. What was that very first trip like, though, under the experimental conditions? It was on a ward, on a nuthouse ward. You'd go in a little room, there'd be a bed, and a stand with some water on it, and a tape recorder, and nothing else. There's a little window right here with wire through it, and you could look out and see the people out in the other room. Kesey was also able to find a job working at the psychiatric ward of the same hospital and would spend hours talking to patients, many of whom were given LSD without knowing it. Kesey became very empathetic to the patients he was spending time with, believing that they were not crazy, just misunderstood. It was his time at the hospital that gave him the creative idea to write a story, and in 1959 he wrote his first novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was eventually published in 1962. The novel is told from the narrative of Chief Brodom, a deaf and mute Native American who sparks up a friendship with the new patient Randall Patrick McMurphy, a habitual troublemaker who fakes his own insanity to serve out the rest of his prison sentence at the hospital rather than in prison. Throughout his time at the hospital, McMurphy is at constant odds with Nurse Ratchet, the overseer of the psychiatric ward. The novel is not only a look at the institutional process of that time, but a study of behavioralism and humanistic principles. The novel was an instant hit, becoming a New York Times bestseller practically overnight. Now, powerhouse actor Kirk Douglas immediately purchased the rights to the story and had playwright Dave Wasserman write a stage adaptation. And on November 13, 1963, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest debuted on Broadway with Kirk Douglas playing McMurphy. Interesting side note, a very young Gene Wilder played Billy Bibbitt. The play ran for 82 performances and garnered extremely strong reviews at the time. Kirk Douglas retained the rights to the story and planned to make a feature film adaptation of the play. But you need to keep this in mind. It was the 1960s, and the subject matter was deemed too unsuitable for movie-going audiences of the day. In 1971, an off-Broadway revival of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest premiered in New York. Now, this is worth mentioning because a very young Danny DeVito played the role of Martini. By 1973, Kirk Douglas had passed along the rights to the story to his son, Michael, who was able to secure funding to get a feature film version of the story made. First order of business for Michael Douglas was to hire Milos Forman, a Czechoslovakian director whose work had included The Fireman's Ball and Taking Off. 
Now, Milos Forman was intent on hiring a big-name star for the lead role, and then surround that actor with a cast of unknowns. Now, Kirk Douglas, who had played McMurphy in the stage play, was 60 years old by this point, and was deemed too old for the part. Coincidentally, Michael Douglas showed interest in the part of McMurphy, but was deemed too young for the role. It was Michael Douglas that suggested to Milos Forman that Jack Nicholson should play McMurphy. Nicholson had solidified his resume in roles such as Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, and Chinatown, just to name a few. For Nicholson, the role of R.P. McMurphy was tailor-made for his acting talents. McMurphy was a charismatic, deplorable human who captures the admiration of all of his fellow patients. Once Nicholson was on board, the producers began the daunting task of casting the rest of the film. For the role of Nurse Ratched, the crystal clear antagonist of the story. TV and screen actress Louise Fletcher auditioned numerous times over a six-month period. Milos Forman kept telling her that she wasn't right for the role, but yet kept calling her back for auditions. She was eventually cast one week before filming began. Now, something I found very interesting was that during the filming of the movie, most of the cast would stay in character in between takes. For Louise Fletcher, who was not accustomed to playing such a stone-cold, emotionless character, it began to wear on her. She began to think that the other cast members thought that's the who she was in real life. To prove that she wasn't the prude that she was portraying on screen, during one scene when she entered the room, she showed up in front of the entire cast and crew wearing only a bra and panties. All in the set gave her a standing ovation. Will Sampson, who played the chief, was working at the time as a park ranger in Oregon, where the movie was being filmed. Ironically, he was offered the role because he was the only Native American the casting department could find that fit the massive size the character called for. us two guys doing this fucking place. Let's get out of here. Out. Canada. Canada. We'll be there before these son of a bitches know what hit them. For the role of Harding, Broadway and screen actor William Redfield was cast. It was while filming Cuckoo's Nest that Redfield was diagnosed with leukemia, and he died less than a year after the film was released. All right. Mr. Harding, you've stated on more than one occasion that you suspected your wife of seeing other men. Oh, yes. Yes, very much. I suspect her. I suspect her. Well, maybe you can tell us why you suspect her. Well, I can only speculate as to the reasons why. Have you ever speculated, Mr. Harding, 
that perhaps you are impatient with your wife because she doesn't meet your mental requirements. Perhaps, but you see, the only thing I can really speculate on, Nurse Ratchet, is the very existence of my life with or without my wife in, in, in terms of the human relationships, the juxtaposition of one person to another, the form and the content. All right, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? This is the point. This is the point, Tabor. It's not bullshit. I'm not just talking about my wife. I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Finally! <laughs> yeah, Hardy, you're so fucking dumb, I can't believe it. Oh. <laughs> oh. It makes me feel very peculiar, very peculiar when you throw in peculiar. something like that. Why? What does that mean? Peculiar, peculiar Harding. Peculiar. 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 I want to tell you guys something. You just don't want to learn anything. You just don't want to listen to anybody. He's got intelligence. Wait a minute. You've never heard the word peculiar? Say, what are you trying to say? Peculiar. Trying to say I'm queer? Is that it? Little Marianne? Little Marjorie Jane? On the street? Huh? Is that it? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Is that your idea of communicating something to me? Is it? Well, is it? Oh, <laughs> they're all crowding in on you, Mr. Harding. They're all ganging up on you. Is that news? No, they, they, they sometimes want to gang up on me, too, but Cheswick, I... Well, do me a favor. Huh? Take it easy. Take it easy. And but, stay off my side. But I only want to... I only want to... I only want to help you, I understand. Mr. But don't you want me to... Please. But I only want to... Please. But I only want to help you, Please. Mr. For the role of the young Billy Bibbit first-time actor Brad Dorff was cast. Dorff has gone on to have a very successful career as a character actor, but he's probably best known as the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play horror movie franchise. I mentioned earlier that Danny DeVito played the role of Martini in the off-Broadway revival in 1971. He was once again offered a chance to reprise that role. For the role of Dr. Spivy, Foreman cast Dr. Dean Brooks, who at the time was the head of the Oregon State Hospital where the movie was being filmed. Now, the scene where Dr. Spivey meets McMurphy for the first time was almost entirely improvised between them both. And the reaction to McMurphy's explanations of his crimes are genuine and authentic. R.P. McMurphy. A hell of a fish there, Doc. Isn't that a dandy? Yeah. About 40 pounds, ain't it? No, 32. 32. But I'll tell you, it took every bit of strength I had to hold it out there while the guy took the picture. Every damn bit. Probably um, that chain didn't help it any either. Well... You didn't weigh the chain, did you, Doc? No, I didn't weigh the chain. <laughs> but damn, I'm awful proud of that picture. That's the first uh, Chinooker I ever caught. It's a nice one. Mm-hmm. Randall Patrick McMurphy, 38 years old. What can you tell me about uh, why you've been sent over here? Well, <clears throat> I don't know. What's it say there? Mind if I smoke? No, go right ahead. Well, it um, says several things here. It said you've been belligerent. Talked when unauthorized. Been resentful in the attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy. 
chewing gum in class? <laughs> well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated. Yeah. To determine whether or not you're mentally ill. This mm -hmm. is the real reason. Why do you think they might think that? Well, as near as I can figure out, it's because I uh, uh, fight and fuck too much. In and the I... penitentiary? No, no, no. You mean why? Wait a why minute. Why did you minute. get sent over here from the work farm? Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, well, <clears throat> I really don't know, Doc. It says here that you went Ain't around. Ain't up to me, you know. I mean, just take a look Ain't at it. Ain't up to me, though. One, two, three, four. You've got at least five arrests for assault. Yeah. What can you tell me about that? Five fights, huh? Rocky Marciano's got 40 and he's a millionaire. That's true. That is true. Of course, it's true that you went in for statutory rape. That's true, is it not, uh, this time? Absolutely true. But, Doc, she was 15 years old, going on 35, Doc, and uh, she told me she was 18 and she was uh, very willing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I practically had to take to sewing my pants shut. But uh, between you and me, uh, she might have been 15. Would you get that little red beaver right up there in front of you? I don't think it's crazy at all, and I don't think you do either. I hear what you're saying. No man alive would resist that, and that's why I got in the jail to begin with. And now they're telling me I'm crazy over here because I don't sit there like a goddamn vegetable. It don't make a bit of sense to me. If that's what being crazy is, then I'm senseless, out of it, gone down the road, wacko. But no more, no less. That's it. Well, to be honest with you, McMurphy, what it says here is that they think, they think you've been faking it in order to get out of your work detail. Oh, what do you like, think about that? Do I look like that kind of guy to you, Doc? Well, let's just be frank for a minute, uh, right. Randall, if you would. Tell me, do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. For the role of Max Tabor, Milos Forman cast another first-time actor, Christopher Lloyd. And, well, I think we all know how his career turned out. All told, the movie took three months to film, and it was almost entirely shot in order. The lone exception was the famous boat scene, which was filmed last. I mentioned the movie was shot at the Oregon State Hospital. Real patients were used as extras. In fact, during one day of filming... A production assistant who was running cables from the second floor to the first floor accidentally left the second floor window open. A real patient escaped using the cables to repel himself down the building. The following day, the local paper ran the headline, One Really Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie. You've been warned. But you really should see the movie. The third act of the film sees McMurphy bribe a night orderly with a bottle of liquor to allow two women to enter the ward. This sets in a chain of events that leads to an all-out party that breaks out on the ward. Although planning his escape, McMurphy drinks himself to the point where he passes out. In the morning, Nurse Ratchet arrives and discovers the ward in shambles. While her and her orderlies attempt to assess the damage, she discovers young Billy Bibbit in the arms of one of the ladies that McMurphy had snuck in. She begins to chastise Billy, who stands up to her for the first time. Um, I can explain everything. 
Please do, Billy. Explain everything. Er everything? <laughs> Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother's going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t t t tell her, Miss Ratchet. I don't have to tell her. Your mother and I are old friends, you know that. Um, please no, 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 don't t t tell my mother. Don't you think you should mother. have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? No, no. I, 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 I didn't. You mean she dragged you in there by force? She she she, she 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 did. Every, everybody did. Everybody? Who did? You tell me who did. Murphy. Miss Rat Miss Ratchet. Please, please don't tell me. Mr. Warren? My mother, please. Would you see that the men are washed and ready for the day? Miss Ratchet, please, 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 please don't, don't tell my mother. Mr. Washington, yeah. put Billy in Dr. No, Stavey's no. office. No, no, no. Stay with him till no, the doctor arrives. No, no, no. no. Move it. Come on, Watson. Get on. No. After Billy is taken away, McMurphy desperately tries to find the key to unlock the window so that he and Chief can escape. It's at that point the younger nurse can be heard screaming off camera as she discovers Billy has slit his throat. This sends McMurphy into a rage, and he attacks Nurse Ratchet, beginning to choke her. Once he is finally subdued, the camera fades to black. The camera opens back up on the ward. It's clear that some time has passed, and things seem to be back to normal. Eventually, McMurphy is brought back to the ward by two orderlies, with two visible scars on his forehead. Once he's laid in the bed, the chief looks him over. Realizing that McMurphy has had a lobotomy, he decides to smother McMurphy with a pillow, rather than to see his friend live in this state. It was never mentioned that it was a lobotomy that McMurphy had, but it's certainly implied given the forehead scars. Now, I was really curious about this procedure. A lumbotomy is a neurosurgical procedure. It consists of cutting or scraping away most of the connections to the prefrontal cortex, the anterior part of the frontal lobes of the brain. The doctor responsible for this extremely controversial procedure is Dr. Antonio Munez, a Portuguese neurosurgeon who received the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1949 for the discovery of this procedure. Lumbotomies are often called the surgically induced childhood. That's a term coined by Dr. Walter Freeman, an American physician 
who was in favor of this practice. In most cases, a lobotomy takes away most of the emotions and inhibitions of those who had the procedure. Most patients that received this procedure could barely talk and would have to be assisted with the most mundane of normal activities, from tying their shoes to dressing themselves to eating and bathing. By the early 1950s, more than 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in America alone. However, by the end of the 1950s, antipsychotic drugs began to be introduced, and the practice was almost completely abandoned. In the early 21st century, many called for the Nobel Foundation to rescind the award that Dr. Munez received, calling it an astounding error in judgment. However, the Nobel Foundation has refused to rescind the award as of 2017. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was released on November 19, 1975. Made on a budget of $3 million, the film went on to gross over $120 million. Side note, Jack Nicholson took a smaller upfront salary instead opting for a percentage of the box office take. Smart move, and he did it again in 1989's Batman. Critics praised the film, and 42 years after its release, it continues to hold a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Also, adjusted for inflation, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is the third highest grossing R-rated film of all time, behind 1970's perennial hits The Godfather and The Exorcist. However, not everyone was happy. Ken Kesey, who did participate in the early stages of the script, walked away from the project after realizing that the story was going to be told from McMurphy's point of view rather than from the Chiefs, as he had written it in the novel. Kesey was so disgusted with the changes that he not only sued the producers, which was settled out of the court, but he never once watched the film. He passed away at the age of 66 in 2001. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was nominated for nine Oscars winning, like I mentioned, the five big ones. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The nominees for the best performance by an actress are... Isabella Gianni in the story of Adele H. Anne Margaret in Tommy. Louise Fletcher in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Glenda Jackson in Hedda. Carol Kane in Hester Street. And the winner is... The winner is Louise Fletcher. Well, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. And I'm loving every minute of it. And all I can say is I've, I've loved being hated by you. I'd like to thank Fred Roos for remembering me, Miloš Foreman for choosing me, Michael Douglas and Saul Zantz for taking a chance and giving me a chance, and Jack Nicholson and a cast of actors whose professionalism, humor, and capacity for getting into their roles made being in a mental institution like being in a mental institution. (laughs) And if you'll excuse me for my mother and my father, I want to say thank you for teaching me to have a dream. You are seeing my dream come true. 
Thank you. And in case you're wondering where the title for the book and movie came from, in the book, the chief's mother used to sing him a nursery rhyme. Ventry, mintry, cuttery, corn, apple seed, and apple thorn. Wire, briar, limber, lock, three geeses in a flock. One flew east, one flew west, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. With one flew over the cuckoo's nest and sometimes a great notion, Ken Kesey established himself as one of America's most talented novelists, but his notorious exploits in the psychedelic 60s overshadowed his reputation as a literary phenomenon. He has finally rewarded all those readers who have been waiting 28 years for a new Ken Kesey novel. With his new book, Sailor Song, he has just done that. Welcome. Welcome. Good, Good to, to see you. you. Your pleasure. Too. Thank you. Uh, Why did it take so long? Well, I was busy. I had other stuff to do. <laughs> I was right. in jail. I was in family. Well, you were living your life. Well, <laughs> yes. let's go. Let's go back to that. I mean, let me take go back to. Uh, you grew up in in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. And and somehow, your what was your father? What did your father do? We were all dairy people. Uh, my dad ran a creamery. My brother runs a creamery. The only legitimate work I've ever done is. Uh, running, working in the creamery. I got a, a pasteurizer's license and an ice cream maker's license. We're a dairy family. Yeah. And then, but you made your way to Stanford. Yeah. You know? I mean, and there was that, you, you were there, Larry McMurdy was there, uh, Wallace Stegner was there. Uh, uh, we were being taught by Frank O'Connor and yeah. Malcolm Cowley. There was Wendell Berry was there, uh, yeah. Ed McClanahan, Gurney Norman. It was, it was, uh, Bob Stone. Did you, Robert Stone? Yeah. He yeah. was a big fan. Did you come out of there saying, I can write? Um, no, I went in there saying, I can write. <laughs> Did you? I came I out of know. there saying, I can well, write as good as I thought I could. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't know I was in a in deep water with some heavy ducks until I got to Stanford. And, 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 and what did it say to you? It just say, there's a lot I don't know? That's, it really did. Uh, Stegner one time uh, accused me of being an anti-intellectual. What he really didn't appreciate was that I was illiterate, <laughs> practically. I, I had come, I majored in, in radio and television. Yeah. And Thinking you would. <laughs> I, th- I was going to write for radio and television, yeah. and somebody read some of my stuff and they said, they're not going to do this on television. <laughs> you, you might as well write <laughs> this fiction. Is, this is not something <laughs> yeah. that middle America is waiting to no, hear. No, this is. Uh, they were still right in the middle of. Uh, I dream of beaver. <laughs> well, well <laughs> the, the, uh, you then you went to try to acting for a while too, didn't you? Yeah, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now really is calling on that old acting practice that I have. I'm, I'm performing these kids' yeah, stories right. around the country. Well, but th- there's a lot of themes here. I mean, one of the people say that that one of the reasons that that your buddy Stone says this, you know, that the part of what's happened to your life is that you. That that living your life was was creating art for you. I uh, I feel like everybody is creative if they just pay attention to how they set the coffee cup on the table and you know how they arrange the flowers and the vase. So take uh, note of living. Yeah, it's it is available to anybody. And besides, I've also written a lot of other stories between those you two bet. books. Okay, but let's go back to those two books, um, because it, boy, I mean, it was in night, was it 60, what, 62? 61, I have two, or something yeah. like that. That's when Cuckoo Nest came out. Yeah, in 64, yeah. that's when yeah. Great Notion came out. Yeah. What was the, what was the message of Cuckoo's Nest? Oh, it's pretty much, uh, as I've been told, it's the same message that's in all my books, that uh, the small, 
can overcome the little by outsmarting it and, and yeah, with a little luck with, and, with a little luck and a little love. The little guy can beat the big guy. Uh -huh. And the kids' stories that I'm telling have that uh, in it very much that uh, you don't want to take the big force on head on. You're going to slide him by and hit him from behind. Do you want to say something to the group, Mr. McMurphy? Well, <clears throat> yeah. I'd like to know why none of the guys never told me that you, Miss Ratchet, and the doctors could keep me here till you're good and ready to turn me loose. That's what I'd like to know. Well, fine, Randall. That's a good start. Would anyone care to answer, Mr. McMurphy? Answer what? You heard me, Harding. You let me go on hassling Nurse Ratchet here, knowing how much I had to lose, and you never told me nothing. Now, Mac, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't know anything about uh, how much. Wait a minute. Now listen. Now look. I'm I'm voluntary here. See, I'm not committed. I don't have to stay here. I mean, I can go home any time I want. You can go home any time you want. That's it. You're bullshitting me. No. He's bullshitting me, right? No, Randall. He's telling you the truth. As a matter of fact, there are very few men here who are committed. There's Mr. Bromden, Mr. Tabor, some of the chronics, and you. Cheswick. Hmm? You're voluntary? Mm-hmm. Scanlon? Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. Mom, Mom. Okay. I mean, you're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You ought to be out in a convertible while bird-dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? What's funny about that? Well, Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. Those are very challenging observations you made, Randall. 